0: You know, in God's providence, I think we find ourselves in almost the perfect New Year's text. Um, It wasn't necessarily planned that way. We began the Gospel of Luke several weeks ago, just marching through the Christmas songs that are present in the first two chapters, and now we come to the end of chapter 2, and we get this record concerning Jesus as a boy. And as I came across an article in Forbes Health this week, I don't read Forbes Health regularly, just... Was searching for 2024 New Year's resolutions, and Forbes ran a survey a few months ago and gathered the results. And here were the top five for 2024, probably not much different from 2023 and 2022 and 2021, but nevertheless, number five, 38% responded or 32% responded they'd like to improve their diet. Four, 34% said they'd like to lose weight. 36% said they'd like to improve their mental health. said they want to improve their finances, and 48% said they want to improve fitness. All good things. Nothing wrong with any of those particular uh, resolutions for the new year. But I find it interesting that when we come to the book of Proverbs, we read in Proverbs chapter 4, verses 5 and 7, get wisdom, get insight. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And whatever else you get, get insight. Our text this morning shows Jesus doing just that. This text is bracketed with two verses that help us understand what the text is intending to communicate to us, what this narrative is intended to teach us about. If you look at verse 40, you'll see the first bracket, and it says, Luke writes concerning Jesus, that he grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now you come to the end of our text this morning, the second bracket, at the end of chapter 2, in verse 52, we read, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. So what's the point? Well, as you're doing Bible study, which I hope you'll recommit to doing this year and reading the scriptures faithfully, as you do it, it's good to pay attention to what we call the top and the tail, the beginning of the passage and the end of the passage because the beginning of a passage and the end of a passage will tell you what the meaning of the passage is, or what the passage is trying to communicate. And particularly what this passage is trying to teach us is that Jesus was growing as a human being, and that he was particularly growing in some specific ways. First of all, in stature, his physical makeup. Of course, he was developing as a man. He really was a human. He was God in the flesh, but he was no less human. He was growing as a young man, but also particularly... He was growing in wisdom, committing himself to the pursuit of and the practice of wisdom. So how did Jesus grow in wisdom and why did he make that his pursuit at these younger days of his life? That's what we're going to answer this morning as we come to Luke chapter 2 verses 40 to 52. How and why did Jesus grow in wisdom? That's the question we want to answer. And There's really two ways the text answers that for us, and I'll go ahead and give you those two ways, and then we're going to walk through them with particular application for parents and youth this morning because I think those are the particular audiences that are addressed in the passage. First of all, Jesus grew in wisdom because of his parents' commitment to God's Word. And second, Jesus grew in wisdom because of his own commitment to God's Word. Those are the two points of our passage sermon this morning. So let's get into the first one in the first two verses, or first three verses. Jesus grew in wisdom because of his parents' commitment to God's word. Joseph and Mary were committed to God's word, and that was no small role. They had no small role in Jesus being so committed to God's word himself. I want to say three things about Mary and Joseph's commitment to God's word. First of all, Mary and Joseph remembered God's word. They remembered God's word. I want to dip just a little bit back into early parts of chapters 1 and 2 just to remind us of what we've seen concerning Mary and Joseph and their obedience to God already. You remember in Matthew chapter 1, the angel Gabriel tells Joseph to name his coming son Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. His name had a significance to his mission. And what do we find here in Luke chapter 2? but them doing just that. Our brother A.W. reminded this when he reminded us of this when he was preaching last week on the Song of Simeon. But look back at chapter 2, verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he, Jesus, was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So they are remembering what God told them, and they are naming him exactly what the angel told them to call him nine months before. And they committed to circumcising him as a firstborn Jewish male on the eighth day, as the law required. His parents were obedient to the Lord. Jesus was born into a devout, God-loving family. What a beautiful thing. Jesus had been growing up in the home of his mother Mary and his adoptive father Joseph. And let's just start with Joseph to consider his own Godliness we 're told in Matthew chapter one, verse nineteen that Joseph was a righteous man, and we can infer from Chapter thirteen of Matthew that Joseph was a carpenter when the people in the town of Nazareth referred to him as the carpenter uh, refer to Jesus as the carpenter 's son, so we can know something about joseph 's own physical strength as we consider his role as a carpenter. Joseph would have been a physically strong man carrying the beams and swinging the axe and sawing the boards and hammering the nails, and that makes for a hard physical job. And no doubt he was also a careful, thoughtful man. Any of you who have done significant carpentry knows that you've got to get the measurements right. If you get the measurements wrong, the whole project can go down. So you've got to get it right. There's a lot of people counting on Joseph to do the work he's supposed to be doing to help them build their homes or repair their tools or whatever they're doing particularly useful that they would hire him to do carpentry Four. There's a lot of work to do. There's no time for distractions. This was the kind of man Jesus grew up with, a very blue-collar, hard-working, godly father. And Jesus, as Joseph's eldest son, would have no doubt been his dad's apprentice. He would have been right there in the shop with him, sawing the line that dad had drawn. He would have had Joseph right there by his side, watching him, alongside of him, walking him through the process, teaching him how to guide his little hands and how to smooth out rough parts and round off the corners that were a little little too much wood had been left over. And this is how Jesus grew. This is how Jesus learned, all under the careful eye of his faithful, godly, hardworking father. And yet the Bible tells us even more about Joseph. He wasn't just a physical, strong man, but he was a gentle man. We know he's caring When he found out that Mary was pregnant, before he knew the truth, he must have been devastated, he must have been crushed, badly hurt. Yet even in the pain, when a lesser man would have sought to get even or to hurt Mary back or to get some revenge, Joseph resolved to divorce her quietly, to keep it out of sight, to try to protect her reputation, to keep it private, to not humiliate her, to not make a scene. The Bible says that he was honorable. And here's the evidence we have. But he's also a spiritual man. He walks with the Lord. Mary got a visit from an, the angel Gabriel one time that we know of to announce Jesus' birth, but Joseph got three visitations. The first one was when the angel told him it's okay to marry Mary because the child in her was born of the Holy Spirit, not of adultery. One, another visit came to tell him to leave Egypt to escape Herod. And the third visit came to tell him to go back. So what an honor that Joseph must have had to have such access, direct access to God. What a privilege, what a responsibility to be the main role model, the primary teacher and the male figure in the life of the Messiah. That's Jesus' earthly father, and he was a great one. But what about Mary? Well, Mary, as we've already seen in her song in Luke chapter 1, is held up as a great example of faith. When the angel told her that she would bear the Christ, Luke one thirty eight, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. Yes, Lord, I'm your servant. Do whatever you want to me, even though I know what people are going to think about me. I know the shame this is going to bring. I know the culture in which I live and the extreme judgment that I'm going to receive, the humiliation, the shunning, people talking behind my back, but nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will, Lord. She would be a great reflection of what Jesus would one day have in his own mouth as he said, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. These are Jesus' parents. These are his human role models. God the Father gave him some really good ones, didn't he? So how did Jesus grow? In wisdom, in what practical ways? Well, here's the first. He had great examples. He had great examples. You want to grow in wisdom this year, in the favor of God this year? Well, if you're older among us, you're never too old to have godly examples in your life, are you? We never outgrow that. We can outgrow our need for the physical care of our parents, but we never grow the, outgrow the need for having wise people in our lives who can instruct us and teach us. So find some strong, dedicated, gentle, loving, God-centered, spirit-filled role models and friends and surround yourself with them. And I'll tell you what, this church is full of them. So I want to encourage you to lean in to the relationships that you have in this congregation that God has given you for this very purpose, to grow in wisdom. The first way this happens is by imitating godly examples, and this is why the church is so essential to our growth and spiritual maturity, because it's in the church that we find the godly role models that we need to spur us on and to help us grow. We do this as we relate to one another in the ways that the Bible has called us to relate to one another, to love one another, to serve one another, to encourage one another, to bear one another's burdens, to speak the truth in love to one another, to meet together, to pray with and for one another. That's the first way Mary and Joseph modeled for Jesus' godliness as they remembered God's word. Secondly, Mary and Joseph followed God's word. Mary and Joseph followed God's word. Look at verse 22 and 23. Of Luke chapter 2. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. So, first, dedication. Jesus was brought to Jerusalem after his birth, after his circumcision, to be presented to the Lord. And this was in keeping with God's prescription that every firstborn male had to be redeemed. And one of the reasons that Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to Jerusalem not long after his birth was to fulfill that obligation. And in so doing, they guaranteed that their son was being conformed to the law of God even from his infancy. But that's not the only reason they came. We're also told that it was for purification. The other reason that they brought Jesus to Jerusalem was that Mary and Joseph needed to be purified, particularly Mary. Childbirth rendered a mother and anyone else who came into contact with blood during the birth, which no doubt Joseph did, ceremonially unclean and restoring ritual purity involved animal sacrifice 40 days after the birth of the child, according to Leviticus 12, 1-8. And ordinarily, the animal that would be sacrificed was a lamb, but if the family couldn't afford a lamb, two turtle doves or pigeons could be offered in the place of the lamb. And Mary and Joseph offered up birds, not a lamb, indicating that they were not wealthy enough to purchase such a sacrifice and that Jesus would grow up not among the rich, but among the lower poor. And uh, these birds would still have been expensive for any family, let alone a purer one. But Joseph and Mary's concern to keep the law of purification shows also that Jesus was being raised in a godly home by people who were committed to following God's word. Now, on a side note, I just want you to notice something. Joseph and Mary were not only obedient to God, but they were obedient citizens of Rome as well. In our day, we have a a little bit of a... um, an individualistic spirit, if you haven't tell, can't tell in, in the States. And uh, we push back against a lot of authority really fast, uh, if we don't like it. Um, Mary, didn't, Mary and Joseph didn't like Rome. Nevertheless, they submitted to Rome. Look at verse 1 to 3 of Luke 2. I won't read the entirety of the passage, but we read in the verse 1, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And what happened? Verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town... Of Nazareth, the Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the line and lineage or house and lineage of David. Why? To be registered with Mary. He was doing what the governor told him to do. Even though it would be great, it would be expensive, be inconvenient. Nevertheless, even as Mary is pregnant, they go. And in Acts five, verse thirty-seven, we read that this census was a cause for rebellion among some of the Jews. Not Mary and Joseph, though. They're not part of that. There's no reason that they can't obey what the governing authorities call them to do, even if they don't like it. And so that's another evidence of their godliness and their willingness to follow the authorities that God had given them, even when they don't particularly like what those authorities are calling them to do. It's not calling them to sin against God calling them to do something that's rather inconvenient. That's a different thing, isn't it? Thirdly and finally regarding Mary and Joseph, Mary and Joseph modeled God's word. They remembered God's word, they followed God's word, but they also modeled God's word. Now, according to the Old Testament, all Jewish males were required to go, not just as the firstborn to Jerusalem to be dedicated and all that, but also to participate in the annual festivals of the Jewish people, chiefly Passover, We read that in Exodus 23. God told the Israelites to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year to keep three particular festivals. First, the Feast of Passover. Second, the Feast of Weeks, or what we call Pentecost. And third, the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles. Each of those feasts symbolized God's work in his old covenant people, and they did it as a way to remember God's faithfulness to them in the past, and to trust in God's continuing faithfulness for them in the future. And so we see Jesus as a young boy accompanying his parents doing just this. Look at verse 41. Now we come to our text this morning. Verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according with them according to custom. So Jesus is 12 and his family went up according to custom. Now who's Custom. Well, no doubt God's custom, but also their custom. It was their regular practice to do this. Now, why? How do we know that? Well, it says in verse 41 that they did this every year. It wasn't just God who required it every year, although God did, but it was them who committed to do it every year as God required. So what's that telling us? Well, they modeled God's word for Jesus. It was the family's regular practice to keep this feast annually, a fact that provides more evidence of the godliness of Mary and Joseph. Jesus, Jesus and his earthly parents obeyed God's law. Every year, it was their practice to go up to Jerusalem to worship God for Passover. The law required it. They obeyed it. That's not a small thing. Nazareth is about a 3 days journey from Jerusalem. And that's not by Uber, right? That's by walking, largely especially for a poor family like them. That's six days on the road, there and back, plus the time spent in Jerusalem. Where are they going to stay? How much is it going to cost them? We don't know. It's not free, I can imagine. But notice, as a poor family even, they don't do the bare minimum, do they? The text tells us that they left Jerusalem when? When the feast was over. When it was complete, now think about this, that seven whole days, Joseph's sacrifice and work, Mary's certainly sacrificing comfort. She has not only one son, but many children by that point. We'll get to that a little bit later. The requirement for these, those, the, the out-of-town guests to the festival of Passover was only two days. You only had to stay Two days. You didn't have to stay the entire week. You just had to come. But they stayed the entire festival. Joseph and Mary do more than the minimum. Joseph thinks that it's important for his family to engage in the whole Passover festival. It was their practice, their habit, to travel to Jerusalem for this entire week. But notice something else. We have Mary going up to the festival too. Now, that was her habit as well, every year. And that's remarkable because the law only required the men to go. That wasn't because the women weren't recognized. It was actually seen as a, a, as, a, as a measure of grace to the women who were no doubt home, caring for, in many cases, children, young children. And so it was optional. The rabbis considered it an act of mercy not to require such a physical hardship on women. So if they went once, that was considered plenty. Plenty. But Mary went every year, like her husband, with her husband, with her children. She goes above and beyond the call of duty. And that's why it's no surprise when we read in chapter 2, verse 39, this serves as a great summary of Mary and Joseph. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. This is a faithful, faithful couple. How can we apply this? and their example to our own lives. Well, first of all, let me say a word to us as parents and grandparents who, has, who have influence over young people. If Jesus, who was without sin, grew in wisdom and benefited from a God-honoring home life, how much more should we be diligent to provide spiritual instruction and example for the children that are in our lives? Our aim as parents and grandparents is to intentionally prepare our children for godly manhood and womanhood, We must seek to steward well the early years to help our children grow in the wisdom of God. Parents, like Joseph and Mary, we should set this sort of spiritual trajectory for our families. We're not called by God's word to go to the temple or observe feast days, but there is still something that we can learn from the godliness of Jesus' parents, can't we? We New Covenant Christians have the joy and privilege of gathering every Lord's Day to worship the living God, Is worshiping with the church this level of priority for you and your family? It doesn't cost us nearly what it cost Joseph and Mary. If so, let's take a step further. Are we minimalists? Say, I'm here every Sunday, but that's about it. Are we minimalists in terms of our commitment to what God has called us to do? Are you just trying to be a letter of the law Christian, just do the bare minimum? don't want to go above and beyond, don't want to do anything that I wouldn't be required to do, something the pastors are going to call me out on. Don't want to do anything like that, but everything else, back off. Let's reevaluate that. Let's take it upon ourselves to totally engage and immerse ourselves in the life of our congregation and love each other well and do more than is on the paper required. And I want you to notice something, dear ones. Mary and Joseph did all this while being very materially poor. I wonder if perhaps some of one of the ways that we are tempted as American Christians who have been placed here by God in this generation, nothing wrong with being American, nothing wrong with being where we are. God has put us here. God's arranged for this. But is it not a temptation to not need each other because we have so much? And do we not feel that temptation as a reason not to engage in the life of the congregation as though that were the goal anyway? They don't, I don't feel a need. We're needy. We're needy, amen? If you think this is, if you could hear the stories here, we are a needy, hurting people and we need each other. In the most important ways, not necessarily the material ways, although sometimes that is needed, and we, we do help there. But in our affluent age, we can fall into the trap of thinking that it's the material things that we provide for our children that make all the difference in how they grow up. Just give them a good experience and a great opportunities and all that money can buy. You really think that's what makes a child grow into godliness? Jesus didn't have any of that. Does that mean you should be as poor as you possibly can be? Not necessarily. But it does teach you what to prioritize in the life of your children, doesn't it? Prioritizing obedience to God. Prioritizing modeling godliness. Prioritize, and that includes repentance. You don't have to get it right all the time. We never get it right. I fail a ton. But we model godliness by seeking forgiveness and confessing our sin and acknowledging our need for Jesus with our children. So we learn from the example of Mary and Joseph that one of the reasons that Jesus grew in favor with God is because he had parents who prioritized obedience to God over everything else. These aren't perfect parents. They're going to the festival of Passover for crying out loud. What does Passover teach? You can't save yourself. You needed a lamb dying in your place and the blood sprinkled over the doorposts of your house so the death angel and the wrath of God wouldn't come and kill you with the Egyptians. That's the whole message of Passover. Passover. Mary and Joseph aren't going there because they got it all together. They're going there because they recognize they need grace. They need God. That's what they're going for. That's why we come to church. We don't come to church because, well, had a good week. I can go and show myself to the saints now. No, we go here pleading the blood of Jesus once again to cover us in our wretchedness and care for us and walk with us and follow us and help one another do that. So it's not about what we give our children in terms of material things, but how we model for them faithful obedience and service to the Lord that makes all the difference. The point is that Joseph and Mary provided a home where the things of God were prioritized, and the family faithfully practiced those things even though it was costly for them. That's all I'm saying. That's going to look different depending on what stage of life we're in, and how many children we have, or if we have children yet, or, or if we're single, or all those things. But the principle is the same, prioritizing the right things for ourselves and for our family. And Jesus would benefit from the godly devotion of Mary and Joseph as he grew in wisdom and stature. So that's Mary and Joseph. Secondly, we come to Jesus. Mary and Joseph, Jesus' parents, grew or helped Jesus grow in wisdom because of his parents' commitment to God's Word, but Jesus also grew in wisdom because of his own commitment to God's Word. And we as parents do not have the joy of giving birth to the sinless Son of God. So there are some things here that are absolutely unique. Um, I have no doubt that Jesus was an easy firstborn um, in many ways. Uh, we, we get to pass on uh, our original sin to our children and raise them under that condition, so it's different. So it's not guaranteed. We know this. You can be faithful and godly as a parent, and I want to be careful because um, I know that this can be preached in such a way as though parents' commitment to God's Word determines their kids' commitment to God's Word, and that is not true. The Bible doesn't teach it. You can be godly, you can be faithful, and your kids can rebel. So that's not what I'm saying here. There's not a one-for-one. And there are some unique circumstances here with Jesus. But nevertheless, the principle applies. The Bible teaches that we're to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. right? Even if they don't necessarily follow that nurture and admonition as they grow. So today's passage, as was mentioned by Dave on the front end uh, when he read read the scriptures for us, this is the only legitimate account that we get of Jesus' adolescent years or pre-adolescent years, he's 12, he's almost a. He's considered a young adult uh, by this point in Jerusalem. This particular trip to Jerusalem took place just before Jesus turned 13 years old, and if you'll remember, the Jews considered that the age of discernment. In Jewish tradition, a boy became a man roughly around the age of 13, and was fully responsible for keeping God's law. Many Orthodox Jews today and some just kind of culturally Jewish families will practice bar mitzvah, uh, Roundup for a boy at age 13, that's kind of the reason uh, that this sort of thing was taking place. Um, and while this passage is instructive to us on many levels, the most important insight theologically is that Jesus understands his life through one primary lens, his relationship with God the Father. That is Jesus' primary reference in all of his life, even from, as a young boy. It's what does God want me to do? What is God calling me to do? And how can I do what God has called me to do? So we see Jesus growing here as a young boy in his own commitment to God's word in three ways. And I want to walk through those briefly with you. First of all, Jesus preferred God's word. Jesus preferred God's word. Look at verse 43. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, that is Mary and Joseph, and they assumed Jesus being with them, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. We can imagine at this point Mary and Joseph had other children. Mark chapter 6, verse 3 tells us that Jesus had brothers and sisters, physical brothers and sisters, and if he's 12 years old by now, no doubt they have at least had some of those children already. And they also probably took those kids along with them, and there was a big caravan that was going from the town to Jerusalem with them, so it would have been hundreds and hundreds of people along with the relatives of Mary and Joseph, and so they had no reason to think the young lad's often hanging together with other kids, and he's back there with them, and, you know, giving Jesus some independence. He is, after all, almost an adult, and he can handle himself, and he'll be fine, and they didn't pay particular attention, so they didn't give them much careful oversight. No doubt they really didn't need to. So, just to be clear, Joseph and Mary were not absentee parents. They don't need CPS called on them. All right. The average Passover celebration lasted, as we've seen, a little over a week. And you would think that after eight days of rituals and festivities, Jesus would be ready to go home. Jesus, I know Mary and Joseph probably were. He's godly as they were. I mean... Video games, right? No, he didn't have those. He's probably missing them, though, if he had them. Uh, but while his parents were tired and headed home in the caravan headed back, Jesus was just getting started. After three days of frantically searching for him, that would have been one day where they're away from Jerusalem, they recognize we don't have him, they journey a dray back, and then they search for him for a day. So three days, they're searching, they don't find their son. They finally found him in the temple talking to the religious leaders. Now, why didn't they look there first? Probably because they thought that after eight days of church, the last thing Jesus would want to do is have more church. But this reveals how little they knew of the priorities of their younger son, their oldest son. What about you kids, teenagers, young people? You ever thought about, you know, um, as a young person, like, I got all these old people, they follow Jesus, my parents, you know, people in the church. What does it look like for me to follow Jesus at this age? I don't know. Well, first of all, God has given you a whole book of the Bible to tell you how to follow Jesus as a young person. It's called the book of Proverbs. You should read a chapter a day if you can. It's not a law but a recommendation. But second, is giving you the example of the Savior at your age. Remember, 1 John chapter 2 tells us that we are to walk as he himself walked. We are to do the things that Jesus did if we want to follow Jesus. Well, Jesus teaches you how to follow him as a young person right here. This is all you need to do as a young person. I mean, it's not, it doesn't include like picking up your room and like going to school but it does tell you like what should be a main priority of your life as a young person. I mean, I think Jesus knows, if he knows everything about everything in terms of like all the priorities that I should give my time and life to and my mission and I'm sent here by God, and what should I do? I should read the Bible and ask questions about it. That's what I need to devote my time to, getting to know the Bible. Man, here we see Jesus. Looking to the religious leaders, delighting in the things that they were teaching. And you might think, well, okay, Jesus is Jesus. He's like got special God dust on him and he's unique and I'm not like him. And no. You might respond, well, I I would have more delight in church and things like that if it was more entertaining if we didn't do the same thing every week, like that would help. But, but look at Jesus. He's going to Passover. It was the same thing every time! And what's entertaining about sitting around talking to a bunch of old pastors? But here we see what Jesus loved. He loved God's people, and He loved God's Word even as a preteen. If we're going to follow him as young people, something of this love will be reflected in our own lives. Now, I'm not saying that church is all that you love, but church will be central to what you love. Jesus had to be in his father's house. He must be there. And embracing Jesus as your Savior means that other relationships in your life, not to mention other things like ambitions and activities, will be rearranged and reconfigured around the priorities of God. Everything in your life will accommodate Jesus. So Jesus preferred God's word. He wanted to stay later. Secondly, Jesus learned God's word. Look at verse 46 and 47. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and, lear- and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Jesus loved learning about God and his word. There are four things we see here. He sought out teachers, he sat in their midst, he listened, he asked them questions, and he gave answers. I was just struck yesterday, and those of you who attended Ron Cantrell's funeral heard this as well. What was one characteristic that was strung through Lester's testimony, that was strung through Eric's testimony, that was strung throughout the entire funeral service? Ron called me all the time, wanting to talk to me about the Bible and asking me questions about it. Why? That's what Christians do. They love God's Word. They can't go days on end and not read it. They can't go days on end and not pay attention to it. We we love it. We desire it. We hover around it. We want to grow in our understanding of it. We have questions about it. This raises a natural and obvious question. Now, if Jesus is God, how can he learn anything? we need to remember that Jesus is not only truly God, he's truly man. Two natures in one person. As God, he learns nothing. According to his divine nature, he doesn't need any knowledge of anything. He knows everything. But according to his human nature, he learns everything. And so a brief word of encouragement for both parents and kids, I think is appropriate here. Parents, given the emphasis on Jesus' humanity in this passage... I suggest to you that we carefully consider that children and teenagers are capable of spiritual insight, great spiritual insight, as they walk with God as young people. Don't discount that. Jesus was able to teach his teachers. And so do young people, even in our own congregation. I've, I've had interactions with kids, and I've been blown away by some of the things. Either the questions they ask or the answers they have. They're sharp. They're able to grasp things. And while they have, we have the disadvantage of sinful natures in ourselves and in our kids that impacts our minds and their minds and our spiritual senses and their spiritual senses. The Holy Spirit is no respecter of age when it comes to shaping and making hearts tender toward God. Samuel was not the son of God that we read, that Pastor Keith read for us a little bit earlier. But he was attentive to God's voice. And so can our kids be. And this should be a great encouragement to parents and Sunday school teachers and others who teach young children. As you teach in a way that's God centered, not just teaching a set of morals, but helping children in simple ways to see the greatness of God and understand who Jesus is and what he came to do, God is working in ways you can't see right now to shape and mold the hearts of our kids. And this is precisely why we should be so diligent to teach our children, knowing they can get it. We're not on a fool's errand. But modeling it and teaching it to our children in small, bite-sized, age-appropriate ways at different times is a great way to instill in them the truths of God's Word. And that's why I'm so thankful for the vast army, small little army of workers and volunteers and ministry leaders that work with our kids, whether it be in the nursery, reading books to the littlest ones, talking to them, playing with them, or whether it's Chris Houston and her team on Wednesday night providing instruction for our kids, or whether it's Larry Reed and all of our Sunday school teachers who oversee that ministry week in and week out, or whether it's Heritage Christian School and all they're doing, or GCA and all it's doing, or what we're doing in our homes day in and day out, which is the most formative and important of all, the regular ongoing relationship saturated in the Word that we have with our kids And this is why we must not settle for a thin, and we don't, diluted youth ministry, but rather provide an enjoyable but highly intentional Bible-centered time with our kids and with our youth that digs into the Scriptures so that they can know God and they can experience His favor too. And Pastor Thad leads that so well as well. So an encouragement for all of our youth, students, young people. Jesus is portrayed as a boy with a thirst to understand and discuss spiritual questions. The height of... I know it's not cool at your age to ask questions. But if you want to follow Jesus, you will ask a ton of them. Jesus had tons of questions. Did you see that? What, what does it say in verse 46? They found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to... What was he doing? Asking them questions. So many kids grow up in the church and then go off into the world and they hear all these plausible arguments that seems to undermine all the questions they never asked. Do you know there is 2,000 years of great answers to all of your questions that the church has a repository of? Not just this church, but I'm talking about... There's stuff you can read. I know we're in a YouTube age, but reading is still a good thing. And you can find answers, deep, good, long, lasting, soul-building, rock-giving answers to your questions. So don't be afraid to ask the hard questions. Jesus, as a boy, models the kind of heart that we can pursue, a heart that's hungry for the things of God. Ask God for a passion to know the deep things of him. I want to encourage you to enter into dialogue wholeheartedly about spiritual things. Don't be intimidated. Jesus had questions. It's not just knowing right answers. It's the discovery and the discussion that leads to wisdom. You can know all the right answers and be a fool. Wisdom is what we're after. And wisdom comes from wrestling and struggle. And having this, I don't get it, I don't understand it, I don't know how this verse reconciles with this verse or this truth reconciles with this truth, help me. I don't get it, I'm not putting it together. So don't be intimidated. Bring the same energy to this as you do to other passions in your life. If I would say to our kids or our youth, bring the same energy to the teaching time as you do the game time. Same energy, more energy. I think Jesus, if he would have been in a youth group, he'd play kickball. He'd have loved it. And then when he got around the Bible, he'd have been asking questions. And all the kids in the youth group would be like, man, he's kind of spiritual, isn't he? No, he's the fullest human being, and he's what we all should aspire to be. All right, let me conclude here um, with the last few verses, and then we'll wrap up. Look at verse 48 and 49. When his parents saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? So the words must be could be translated, it is necessary. The phrase is used in Luke's gospel two other times, and both times have to do with Jesus demonstrating his grasp of the scriptures. Think about this. In Luke chapter 10, verse 42, when Jesus was interacting with Mary and Martha in their house, and Mary's sitting at his feet, and Martha's busy, what does Jesus say to Mary and to Martha that commends what Mary is doing? One thing is necessary, and what Mary has done is the right thing. Sitting at my feet and learning from me. And then, the second time that we read of this, it was necessary idea, is at the end of Luke's gospel, um, in Luke 24, where he's explaining the scriptures on the road to Emmaus with the strangers. Remember that? We'll get to that in, I don't know, 10 years. (laughs) No, not that long. Where Jesus says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Was it not necessary? He's explaining the scriptures to them. So at both the beginning of Luke's gospel and the end of Luke's gospel, we have these parallels. A journey to Jerusalem and Jesus demonstrating his knowledge of the scriptures. This statement by Jesus is the pinnacle of this text. These are the first words that are recorded by Jesus that we have. The very first words out of his mouth. What is it? Got to be about my father's business. That's our life, dear ones. That's our life. That's what, if those are the first words of Jesus, the first words are important words. Got to be about my father's business. And so we are to be as well. And the way we are about our father's business is orienting our lives around God's word and growing in wisdom like Jesus himself did. Jesus' self-awareness of his purpose was to live in a manner that pleased his heavenly father above all else, even when it strained his relationship with his family, causing them to stress and fear. This would not be the last time his family would feel stress and fear over him. They'd feel it throughout his ministry. So what we must see here is the beginning of something that will be confirmed over and over again in the life of Jesus. Nothing is going to get in the way of his obedience to his father's will. Jesus' passion to honor and obey his heavenly father would take precedence over every other loyalty in his life, including his family. And this is a snapshot of a transition that Jesus is going through in his growing years a transition that every parent is called to prepare their children for. We teach, we correct, we discipline our children not only to obey us, but to one day give their allegiance to a higher authority than us and walk with God for a lifetime and release them to do that. Our goal is for our children to surpass the loyalty to us by giving their highest allegiance to God, and this is the sign of true maturity. And I hope you picked up on it in our reading earlier but Luke chapter 2, verse 52 is a direct quote of 1 Samuel 2, verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with God and also with man. What's the significance of that? Luke wants us to think of the account of Samuel as we read these verses about the boy Jesus. Samuel was the young child that was born to a barren Hannah and was raised in the temple by Eli the priest. Eli functions as something of a father figure to Samuel, and in 1 Samuel 3, like we read earlier in our congregational reading, the boy Samuel keeps hearing the voice of God speaking to him, thinking it's actually his father figure's voice, Eli. So he keeps going to Eli, and Eli keeps saying, go down, lay down, I didn't call you. So what's that, con- what's that connection showing? The relationship between Eli and Samuel is lessening as Eli begins to listen to God's voice alone. And that's what's happening to Jesus here. He's reliving the life of Samuel. He's growing in his distance from his parents as he continues to listen to God's voice above all. So thirdly and finally, Jesus obeyed God's word, and we see this in verse 50 to 52. They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now I want you to notice something. This is really a great place to conclude. Jesus honored his parents and was submissive to them. Notice the, Jesus' desire to supremely honor God above all did not remove his responsibility to honor his earthly parents as he sought to honor God. This demonstrates that submitting to proper God-given authority over us is, an, is as honorable as what Christ did himself. And even in these early years of submitting to God by submitting to his parents, this was just a stepping stone to the ultimate example of honorable submission in Gethsemane where Jesus said, at the cost of his life, not my will but yours be done. Kids, youth, young people, if we're going to follow Jesus in our younger years, your obedience to and honoring of your parents will be a key marker of your genuine discipleship. If you come to any of your pastors and are interested in baptism, one of the first questions we're going to ask is, how are the relationships with your parents and the authority they've, you know, they've recognized in your life? Now, I know we live in a sinful homes, and that, that doesn't mean you never disagree with your parents. It doesn't mean you never um, have different conclusions than your parents, but it does mean that you're committed to honoring them as your parents. If you can't live in meek, humble, genuine submission, to your earthly parents, how are you gonna follow the Lord, who you can't see? There's no reason to think that your heart has yet been subdued to any kind of authority other than yourself. So what we're looking for is, how's your relationship with the authorities in your life? Teachers, parents, others, coaches, things like that. Think about this, if there were ever a child who could justify not listening to his parents, it was Jesus. He was always right. Always. There was never an argument that he shouldn't have won. And though he is worthy of all their obedience, the, the obedience, he should just stand up. I'm God. Mary, Joseph, I can refer to you to that because I made you. I know I was born, but I made you. You listen to me. He didn't do any of that. Why didn't he do any of that? Because it would have been disobedience to God. He's a man. He's called to honor his father and his mother. And he does. And so, he lived under the authority that the father had placed in his life, including his godly but sinful parents. And Jesus was still submissive to the authorities in his life, limited and fallible as they were, because he knew that this was the way of honoring his heavenly father. In fact, that's the only reason he got killed for us is because he was willing to submit to ungodly authority and do whatever they wanted to him. And why did he do this? Because you and I are not like this, and we need a Savior who is. And that's where I want... I know there's a lot of practical lessons here, and I feel the compulsion to close. We're getting close. But let me leave you with this encouragement that will put wind in your sails. Because we do not always delight in doing the will of our Heavenly Father. We can sometimes be the worst offenders when it comes to disrespect for God-given authority. We're happy to obey the leaders in our church as long as they don't instruct us to do anything we don't want to do. We respect those who rule over us in government so long as they enact and do the policies we like. Uh, We respect uh, our husbands as wives and uh, love our wives as husbands so long as the wife is worthy of love and the husband's worthy of respect. Dear ones, Jesus' example... As worthy as it is of imitation, both for parents and children, will ultimately crush us if we see him only as an example to follow. In the end, his example and the example of Mary and Joseph will condemn us as it chiefly reveals how far we have fallen short of obeying God as we ought. As we look at his example, we see that we aren't, nor can we be, righteous in ourselves. We instead need the righteousness that comes from outside of us, a righteous that this 12-year-old boy provides. And this is why we could be so grateful for this preteen Jesus who was all about his father's business. There we have the first recorded words of our Savior and they are all about his delight to do his father's will, to be in his father's house and to do his father's bidding. And because of this, we got hope. We got hope. Because this obedience was not for himself, it's for us. He's obeying for his parents. He's obeying for us. And if Jesus had, to, had been, not been obedient to his parents, he would not have been perfectly holy. He could not have been a perfect sacrifice for our sins. And if he were not the obedient child that you and I should have been, he would not possess a righteousness that he's able to give to us as we trust in him. Where would Jesus' obedience to the Father eventually lead him? All the way to the cross. At the beginning of our passage this morning, where is Jesus going? He's going to Jerusalem. We see Jesus at age 12 with his parents journeying to Jerusalem for Passover. This won't be the last time he journeys to Jerusalem for Passover. And it won't be as pleasant when he appears before religious leaders a second time. He won't be sitting at their feet. He will be crushed under their feet. He won't be learning from them. He will be condemned by them. This is the glory Luke 22.7, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And the the last third of Luke's gospel is comprised of Jesus again journeying slowly toward Jerusalem at Passover, all the while his life hanging over his head, ending the same way it began. His obedience to God's word at the beginning of his life led him into the temple with the religious leaders to learn from them. His obedience to God at the end of his life led him back into the temple to be condemned by the religious leaders first, and then ultimately, Pilate. And so, on... This way to Jerusalem, Jesus has in the background, I'm going to be hanging on a cross, I'm going to be cursed by God for the sins of my people, but this is the only way that forgiveness can be made available to rebellious people like us. And so, how would the Lord have us to respond? Well, for anyone here this morning who is not yet a Christian, you need to recognize in this boy all that you are not and all that God will have you to be, but all that God has provided for you so that you can be saved. He has given you a perfect, righteous man who, will live, who has lived in your place and has died the death you deserve to die so that if you will trust in him and turn from your sin, you will be counted as he is. Namely, God's child, righteous and perfect in his sight. But what about for those of us this morning who are in Christ and longing to grow, maybe as parents, and the example of Mary and Joseph, maybe just as Jesus and our love for God and his word and his business and his people. Well, we've seen three times so far in Luke's gospel that he mentions people keeping experiences in their hearts, that is remembering them. Chapter 1, verse 66, he said that all who heard John the Baptist was born laid it in their hearts, saying, when will this child, what will this, then will this child be? In chapter 2, verse 19, after the shepherds came to Bethlehem, Luke says, Mary kept all these things, pondering them in their hearts. And then right at the end of our passage this morning, we get the third reflection verse. Chapter 2, verse 51, and his mother kept all these things in her heart. Dear ones, as soon as we say amen, Satan wants these things gone. Gone from your life, gone from your heart, don't think about them tomorrow. Don't bring this sermon back up and think about how you can engage God's word more faithfully this year. No, you got work to do. Get busy. Are you going to let that happen? Or are you going to be obedient like Mary and the example that we treasure these things? Ponder them in your hearts. Think out the implications. What does this mean for me? And then interact with God about it. That's what he wants. Think about this. What have I thought? What have I considered? How can I learn? How can I grow How can I confess? How can I believe? Under the canopy of grace, not law, not condemnation. This is not a way to earn a ticket to heaven. This is under the canopy of wisdom. How can I grow? That's what the Lord would have us to ask in light of this. Let's pray together, and music team, please come forward. Father, thank you so much for the time in your word this morning, gazing at our Savior as a young boy, being reminded of his faithfulness to you, even from his youth. And Lord, none of us in this room, let alone me, can look back over our lives and see a life that has been lived like our Savior lived. We're all sinners. We are all those who have failed. But Lord, that's not the end of the story. And that's not even why Jesus is, this is in the Bible. The point of this passage is to show that we have a real human Savior who really did live for us who really did work out the righteousness that we needed in our lives, that really was obedient to you, so that in him we might grow, we might be transformed, we might be a a greater reflection of the image of God being recreated after the image of God that we see in him. So Lord, would you help us to treasure these things and, and hold them in our hearts and to remember them and think them through and wrestle with the implications for our own lives and our families and our commitment to you. Lord, surely we all have room to grow in wisdom. I am a fool in so many ways and need to grow in wisdom. So Lord, would you help us all to have that sort of rigid, gracious gospel honesty with one another uh, and help us to help one another to grow in wisdom in this year and all the years that you give us in this world by being faithful to your word, to living it, to loving it, to learning it, to following it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, brothers and sisters, and sing in response.